Welcome to episode 40 of the GT on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I am Will Townsend, dialing in from beautiful Isla Mirada, Florida, after escaping the winter weather in Texas last week. And joining me again this week is fellow analyst, Angel Sag. So let's get started with my first topic. Last week, the SEC announced that they would be redrawing broadband coverage maps in order to address the digital divide. And actually, I've been quite impressed with the interim FCC chairwoman and her focus on this. Um, it's no secret, um, there was actually um, money set aside, $65 million in December of last year to do this. But in, in doing so, this is not gonna be a trivial exercise. She estimates that it's gonna take until at least 2022 to produce the maps. And this will be pulled from that $9 billion uh, 5G fund for rural America that was uh, put together under the Trump administration. So, you know, obviously, you know, very critical, you know, there, there's, you know, this big gap in coverage. These maps will uh, be, you know, designed to determine where there's lack of current 4G coverage. And, and certainly that will help with respect to uh, not only bolstering LTE as a backup, but eventually 5G. Um, so I'm wondering, what are your thoughts here, Angel? Well, <clears throat> I think it's important for these maps to be drawn properly. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand why these maps matter. A lot of these maps are being used by the carriers to claim certain you know, coverage. And as a result of these coverage claims, they're able to get funding for certain types of government programs, including this rural program. So mm -hmm. I think it's interesting and important that the government find a trusted party that they can rely on to gather real coverage data. Uh, I, I think that there is data out there. Um, and I think if you were to be able to aggregate UCLA and OpenSignal and all the potential data sources that are out there, I think you'd get a much better idea than what the cut what, what the operators are showing. Um, I think the operators are going to use a test methodology uh, that will benefit you know their claims of coverage. Right. And I can say I can speak from experience. I've definitely had times where you know I did not have coverage, and I should have based on the maps. So I think. This is a multi-pronged problem and it's an expensive one to resolve, but I think ultimately it's important to have if we're gonna really spend our government money properly on giving out FCC money for funds in the rural areas. So I think it's a good thing. I wish you know, it could happen faster as we all do, yeah. uh, but I think setting at realistic expectations and, and budgets is important. And I'm just glad to hear that the FCC is continuing to move forward on important topics. Yeah, you bring up a very good point. So um, the FCC shouldn't rely just on the operators to your point, because there are always these claims about performance and coverage and that sort of thing and reliability. Um, they need to factor in things like UCLA as well. And uh, just a shout out to the FCC. Uh, if you need any advice, Angela and I are available and ready and willing to, <laughs> to help out there. The other point that I'll make too is that, you know, as you know, as these maps get, you know, um, you know, finalized, you know, from my perspective, you know, obviously mobility 
um, is going to be, you know, a huge component. You know, when you look at low band spectrum, T-Mobile has been very aggressively rolling out their, their low band spectrum to get that wide coverage area. You're beginning to see some of their other competitors do the same. But, you know, fixed wireless access, I think, is going to be a big part of this as well to be able to bounce point to point. We've talked on, you know, a prior podcast about uh, the United States Postal Service, you know, wanting to serve as some sort of hub or, you know, mini cell site. Um, and, and so that could be a play, you know, that there, there could be FWA deployed there as well. But I, I do believe it'll be a combination of, you know, of mobile and, and fixed wireless access. But we'll keep tabs on this. And as, you know, things develop, we'll report back. But it does look like the timeline, um, it, it's not going to happen overnight. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see how things roll. So let's move to your first topic this week. And T-Mobile um, made some new subscriber announcements, correct? Yeah, so T-Mobile has new plans. And these new plans are actually, they're a combination of good and bad. Um, you know, one, they're good that they give an option to customers now to have a fully unlimited 5G. So they have a new plan called Magenta Max, which replaces their Magenta Plus, which is currently what I'm on. I'll probably switch to Magenta Max. Mm-hmm. Um, and Magenta P- Max, what it does is it basically says, okay, we now have a nationwide 2.5 gigahertz network. And we are confident that maybe we won't have full coverage today, but in the next year or two, when it matters to us, we will actually have enough capacity in our network that we don't care how much 5G data you use. We'll we'll make you pay for it, but we don't actually care how much 5G data you use. So they're they're saying that they will no longer cap uh, mobile users at all. Uh, The only uh, stipulation is that you will be limited to 40 gigs a month of Wi-Fi hotspot, which is still very generous. Um, And they also doubled their standard Magenta plan from uh, a premium data of 50 gigabytes uh, a month to 100 gigabytes per month. So unless you're doing something absolutely wild, um, you're not gonna hit those caps. Um, And realistically for a lot of people, this could be their home connection. Um, The real issue is that Wi-Fi hotspot is still not as generous uh, it goes from three gigs to five gigs on that plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in addition to that, those plans, they also have a senior 55 plus plan. I, I hate to say senior because I think my dad's coming up on 55. I'm pretty um, close to that as well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what's interesting is that plan is $90 for two users and they also get unlimited 5G talk and text for 90 bucks a month. So it's $45 a person for pretty good data speeds, pretty good coverage. And um, I I think it's a good plan. Um, And it comes with 40 gigs of um, 4G LTE hotspot data as well. So it's a pretty good plan for somebody who uh, doesn't want to spend too much, but wants to have a lot for it. Um, and I think overall, these plans are very competitive. That said, this uh, Magenta Max plan goes is $85 for a single line. 
which mm -hmm. is pretty steep. Yeah. Um, I believe that if you have four lines, they discount it down to like 50 something dollars a line. And then if you do this promotional period, you know, I don't know how long that lasts, but I, I think the promotional period, they're even knocking it down to like 40 $3 per line if you have four lines. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to, this is another, you know, T-Mobile flex where they're trying to take advantage of their them being a cost um, conscious operator, yeah. um, but also trying to add some value. Uh, I think a lot of people are gonna, you know, balk the price, the fact that prices are going up, um, which is a valid concern. Um, but I, I think that $85 a month for, completely unlimited is also not outrageous mm -hmm. when you consider other operators don't even offer that option. Yeah. You know, and, and T-Mobile has been, you know, sort of the leader, you know, with respect to the data cap thing, right. With unlimited plans. I mean, I think they, they were at 45 or 50 gigs. Um, so now they're, they're kind of, you know, taking it to another level, removing those data caps and to your point, providing tremendous value um, you know, for the price. And actually, I think that max plan, um, you know, even at that level, I, I think with the additional benefits that you get with it, I think there's still, there's still, you know, an extremely, you know, large amount of uh, value, you know, there. But uh, yeah, so T-Mobile continues to be disruptive in the consumer space. You and I have had a chance to speak with the team, in particular, the T-Mobile for Business team recently. Um, we, we can't share any of that information at this point, but on a future podcast, I think we'll have some things to to share with respect to how T-Mobile, now that you know Sprint and T-Mobile have come together, how they're going to go focus on the enterprise. And so that that's pretty exciting. So we'll share that on a future podcast. But let me move to my second topic this week. Um, I want to talk about the C-band auction. And um, the kimono was opened on um, on what some of the operators paid and. You know, you know, it raised a record 80, 81, 82 billion dollars. Well, Verizon constituted about half of that at over 45 billion. You know, no surprise, they had huge gaps in their mid-band footprint. And uh, and I actually had wrote up before this was, you know, was revealed this week. Uh, last week I contributed an article to RCR Wireless, weighing in on some of my insights around C-band. And I kind of I kind of identified three areas, and one was this huge, this huge you know price tag, right? And you know how AT and T, as an example, had to go secure credit facilities uh, in order to sort of finance you know and you know their uh, their spectrum you know holdings. But you know the two other things that I also identified with with C band is you know we've talked about this before. It's upper mid band, so it requires densification. So it's not it's not you know, it's not a trivial exercise. It's it's not going to be an inexpensive exercise. It's going to take them a while. Um, you know, AT and T and Verizon um, to densify. You know, at that spectrum foot. You know, level and be able to roll that out effectively. And then, you know, the, the third the third challenge that I identified is just you know there have been a ton of um, challenges with local regulations and those sort of things. And we've talked about the conspiracy theory around you know you know five will five G fry your brain and all of that. And you know my my insight there is that I think you know that 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 was really sort of based on that millimeter wave. I mean that's new. That's something new within five G. Higher you know higher spectrum band that also requires a lot of densification. But there just been a lot of silly, you know, um, over-regulation in my mind, even in my hometown of Austin, Texas, where 
we're very tech savvy yet um, our local government, you know, doesn't like the aesthetic look of the massive MIMO antennas or, you know, they're, they're concerned about these small cell devices being pole, pole mounted, strand mounted and that sort of thing. So um, there, there are going to be a lot of challenges here. So I'm wondering, you know, just sort of beyond what was revealed this week on what Verizon paid, what do you have any additional insights? Yeah, I think I was interested in the fact that Verizon actually spent more than anyone expected. Yeah. Um, I think it was because they were so aggressive in getting that A block. Um, my understanding is the A block is 100 megahertz of spectrum, and that would be the first one released uh, basically at the end of this year. Uh, but what's interesting is that I think um, it's 6040. I think it is. So 60 megahertz goes to Verizon, 20 goes to AT&T. Mm -hmm. uh, so they won't have the full uh, spectrum that they've actually bought uh, until later, 2022, which is what we expected. Um, and, you know, it'll take time for clearing and stuff like that. So I think it's probably going to be a year or two until we really see the benefits of this yeah. auction. Um I do think Verizon will have to densify. Verizon already has a fairly dense network, but it's nowhere near as dense as someone like T-Mobile um, and Sprint because they had to be dense as a result of the spectrum that they had. Um, so I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this pans out. Um, but I, I welcome competition and I hope that Verizon and AT&T can really, you know, put something together that will be competitive to what T-Mobile will have today. Uh, you know, obviously T-Mobile's network is not fully built out yet. Uh, we'll probably see that realistically end of this year. But I think that will set a good benchmark for what AT&T and Verizon has to live up to with their mid-band spectrum. I agree. I agree. Well, let's move to your second topic this week. And, you know, we talk about China often and the GSMA, um, you know, released some figures with respect to projections for 5G subscriptions in China. Yeah, so the GSMA released a... Uh, you know, one of their many studies that they do, and they found that uh, their report, the mobile economy China, estimates that uh, 5G connections by 2025 will represent 47% of the total mobile connections in China, uh, surging from the current 12%. So currently, 12% of China is on 5G, and they expect that it will be 47% by 2025. I think that's a reasonable assumption. Yeah. Um, Conservative, that, in my estimation. Yeah, and that China will be one of the leading countries in terms of 5G adoption by 2025, also not an outrageous assumption. Yeah. Um, and that they will, they will only um, fall behind uh, South Korea, the US, and Japan in terms of percentage of adoption, mm -hmm. um, which also makes sense because um, China is a gigantic country. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the reality is, is that that comes out to 822 million 5G subscribers by 2025. And I think that's totally reasonable considering how many 5G subscribers, how many subscribers, you know, mobile subscribers there are in China, which is well over a billion. Yeah. And, you know, I, all I can say is that this, this is a conservative, as you said. Yeah. And I think that we might even see even a faster uptake because everything about 5G has been faster and more aggressive than 4G was by a lot. Because I remember the 4G rollout. I was a 
a newly minted journalist at the time. And I was running around with Verizon USB dongles because those are the only devices you could get in your hands to test the new 4G network. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, I'm wondering, I'd love to get your opinion on this as well, because I have one. I mean, yeah, just given the sheer population of China and the aggressiveness of, you know, the telecom operators, there, the big three. Uh, and obviously, you know, because it's China, there's a lot of government intervention and subsidy going on there. Do you think that as they accelerate their subscriber base, and I'm going to hold my opinion back because I want to hear yours first. That do you think that that gives China an advantage relative to the U.S. and other countries as far as leveraging 5G to drive GDP growth? Oh, 100 um, <clears> percent. <throat> I think the, there's a lot of fear mongering about the 5G race. Yeah. You know, I hear that a lot. Um, but the truth is, is that no matter how far behind China is or how far ahead they are, they will always have a structural advantage in that the government is fully invested in ensuring that 5G is deployed uh, in a uniform, consistent, standardized way Mm -hmm. um, that facilitates an environment that will ensure new industries that will prop up as a result of 5G, you know, they're, yeah. they're going to go full on, you know, force every car manufacturer to standardize around one 5G standard for automotive. They're going to make everybody, you know, all, you know, cities standardize around this specific standard for car infrastructure. It's like they're going to mandate things that we simply cannot because the central government has that kind of power in China. Yeah. Um, and I just think that they will have an advantage on 5G regardless of what we do. Um, but it will be interesting to see how much their regulatory advantage will help because, you know, the reality is, is that whatever the central government wants happens and we just don't have that kind of power in the U S and we having, you know, uniform regulation allows for faster adoption of new technologies. And that's just the way it is. That said, it also less allows for less creativity and less flexibility. So there are some trade-offs. So, the possibility is that, you know, we, they might get new use cases before we do. Yeah. Um, and that's just the way it is. And I don't think there's anything the U.S. government can do other than try and, you know, gather all of the different interested parties in the U.S. and make sure that they at least understand each other and, and work together. And yeah. like you've mentioned before, having those barriers in localities with, you know, city councils is probably the biggest barrier I think we have. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, yeah, so I agree with you. Um, I think it does give China an advantage. Um, you know, time, you know, you know, time will tell if the US can catch up, you know, we, we tend to be very resilient and creative and lean into, you know, our, you know, our software, you know, expertise and that sort of thing and semiconductor expertise. And, you know, China is very good at, you know, lot size one manufacturing, but, um, but, 5G is definitely a game changer. So it'll be interesting to kind of keep tabs on this. So, and that kind of, that's a nice segue to my third and final topic this week, talking about government uh, involvement. Um, It was announced that uh, DARPA and the Linux Foundation are collaborating together 
to deploy 5G for, for US federal government use cases. And we've talked about DARPA on you know, prior podcasts. And you know, I, I think for a lot of people, when they think of open source, they think, oh my gosh, you know, open source, you know, isn't that vulnerable? You know, you're using a common kernel, software kernel, and um, you know, is that, could that be kind of a security risk? And you know, I've spent a lot of time with the Linux Foundation, um, spent a lot of time with open source. And, you know, one of the superpowers I think that open source brings is that because you have so many eyeballs um, um, upstream and downstream, that actually um, it really, it, it, it bolsters the security aspects of it as well. And so um, I, wasn't, I wasn't that surprised when I saw this announcement. There's actually going to be a conference held in uh, in March. It's a it's an open networking um, forum event where um, I don't know to what degree they're going to present the details, right? Because this is tied to national security. But um, you know, there's going to be a discussion around the you know you know further discussion around this collaboration. So I I think this really sort of points to all the goodness that the Linux Foundation, um, the networking team has been focused on to drive um, open source connectivity, not only on the enterprise side of things, but on the service provider side of things. So do you have any additional thoughts? Yeah, the only thing I was gonna say is, I think one of the good points that kind of shows how much Linux has matured and the attitude towards Linux has matured is the fact that the new rover on Mars is running on Linux and open source ah, software. Good point. Good point. And that's defense grade technology. Like you can't send something into space anymore. Well, you never really could, but you know, you can't send things to space unless you are defense grade for pretty much everything. Right. So I think it's interesting that NASA has already gone that, that route. Um, and I think it's a, it's a very likely possibility that we'll see the same thing happening with 5G infrastructure. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, when you look at what's happening with disaggregation in the RAN and this whole momentum behind open RAN and a lot of that's being driven to uh, to kind of wean the U.S. off its dependence on, you know, companies that are located in other parts of the world, even in Europe, not just China, um, yeah. from, you know, for 5G infrastructure. So, yeah, so it's definitely a trend that's that's moving in that direction. Well, let's hit your third and final topic this week, and the dust is hasn't even settled yet on this landmark C band auction, and uh, the FCC is readying another mid band auction, right? Yeah, so this is actually something that's already been in in flight uh, since the last administration. Uh, there was a study that was made by the Department of Defense for 3.45 gigahertz to 3.55 gigahertz. Yeah. Um, and this is a band uh, that's currently being used, but they are looking for a way to clear it. Uh, and the expectation is that there will be uh, a way to make this possible. And many of the uh, existing users will be tried to uh, relocate to 2.9 to 3.0 gigahertz. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, the thing is it's 100 megahertz of spectrum and it's a lower band than uh, what is currently available uh, for Verizon and AT&T in the C-band. So we'll propagate a little better. But what's interesting is this is also the harmonized global 5G band, which is 3.5 gigahertz. So Mm -hmm. it's actually kind of interesting because that would potentially allow for an interoperability band in the U.S., 
for people to roam from abroad that have devices that are specifically tuned to 3.5 gigahertz, um, but might not support all of our bands um, because there's so many 5G bands now. Um, it's possible that they will support all bands. You know, some if it's like a Qualcomm solution, probably will. But if it's a lower cost 5G solution, you know, us adopting a 3.5 gigahertz band could be a beneficial thing for the world and for us as well. So when we have devices that work in 3.5, we can go abroad and they also work. That was kind of the whole point of harmonizing that band. That said, this is not a done deal. Um, it was supposed to happen in December. And, and by mean, I mean this December, not last December. Um, that was the expectation set by the administration, but now it sounds like they might move it up to October. So we might know before the end of the year who could actually um, have this spectrum and how it will be uh, utilized uh, and by whom. But considering that Verizon and AT&T both just spent uh, 25 and 45 billion dollars uh, I, I, 45 and 25 billion dollars respectively uh, I think that they're probably not that much of an appetite to buy that spectrum um, T-Mobile spent about 10 billion so they might be interested but it's possible we could see some of the bidders uh, that didn't bid on any C-band uh, like the cable companies yeah. um, or maybe even a US cellular who spent I think a couple billion um, right. we could see them getting involved. So it'll be interesting to see who gets, who, who, you know, gets interested in this. We could also see, you know, some private equity firms, which also bid on some spectrum, buy that up and hold on to it, expecting it, its value to increase right. as, as some operators reach out and think, oh, we've got holes in these areas we want to fill with 3.5. So we'll see what happens. Um, but it's an interesting thing. It's good for, I think the industry because, we need more spectrum and the more spectrum we have, the less scarce it is. And the less scarce it is, the less people overpay for spectrum and eventually overpay for service and, and connectivity. Yeah. You mentioned us cellular. So they, they really, they're focused on a lot of rural America. And to your point, this swath of spectrum, you know, propagates a little bit better than what we just, you know, saw, you know, auctioned in, in C-band. And so like, why, why on earth wouldn't the FCC consider some sort of carve out? I don't want to say subsidy, but some sort of carve out for U.S. cellular because, you know, they, they didn't really purchase a lot of spectrum in this last auction. And, no. you know, and if we really want to, you know, you know, solve this digital divide issue and, and get cellular connectivity out, you know, into rural America, you know, I, I think instead of just continuing to fill the government coffers, there could be, there should be a carve out. I think, I think that would be fair. You know, I, I just think they, I think part of the reason why they didn't bid on C-band is because it's, you know, 3.7 to 3.0 to, to 4 gigahertz. And that's yeah. going to be really hard for them to build out. It, it would be, yeah. It, just those assets would be really, really difficult for them to build out just given the, you know, the part of the country that they, that they focus on. I agree with you hundred percent. Well, Hey, Angela, it was another great podcast. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope that you guys, listen, our listeners and viewers, enjoyed this week's podcast. Uh, if anyone out there would like to provide insight on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Will Town Tech, and I'm at Anshal Sag. We hope you have a great weekend, and please tune in again next week.